Well, we are, again, looking at only a single verse this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. So please turn there if you're not already. Um, there's a few reasons we're just looking at one verse today. First is, this one single verse is incredibly rich and deep and worthy of a single sermon. And I think that that will be evident. It's amazing how much Peter says about Christ's suffering and death on the cross in so few words. And, and so it will be time well spent for us to unpack this and to just slowly meditate upon this line by, phrase by phrase, word by word, these incredible truths that are contained in this little verse. So that's one reason. Second, as I said earlier, we will worship at the Lord's table together today. And I don't want us to be rushed there. And I, and I, I, don't, I, I want us to be able to, to, to be slow in our worship of Christ there. And I don't want us to be rushed here either. And if we try to cover verses 19 to 22, I'm afraid we will be. Um, and, and, and reason being, and this is the third reason we're just focusing on one verse, verses 19 to 22 are incredibly complex and difficult. And uh, you can scan down there and see some of the potential challenges that will come for us in interpreting these verses. They are, I don't mean to scare you and, and, uh, about coming back next week. They are beautiful and they are profitable and they are intended for our wonderful encouragement as sojourners in this world, as Christians uh, who are particularly are facing suffering, but they present some of the greatest interpretive challenges in the New Testament, many scholars say. And so we'll need some time to carefully mine those riches and deal with that properly, and I don't want to do so hastily. So, all right, with that said, let's go. Verse 18, just four. Let's just stop there. We can do that because we only have one verse. <laughs> um, that little word is critical for us uh, to understand this passage properly. And so you see that little, little particle four, and it, it makes us look back over our shoulder. Where have we been? And so we can look back in verses 13 to 17 where we were last week. And if you remember, Peter's exhorting and encouraging his readers, us, but even his original readers and including us, to have godly confidence in the face of suffering and persecution. And so he says in verse 14, Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And he concludes in verse 17, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Then you get the very next words, verse 18, For Christ also suffered. Now we could just stop right there. That is enough. For Christ also suffered. Do you see the incredible encouragement in those four words? Do you feel the strength and the hope that are contained in them? For Christ also suffered. We are not alone in this experience. Christ, our captain of our salvation, Christ Himself has also suffered. The Messiah. And so He could have just said that and boom, dropped the mic, done. That's all that needs to be said. But He, but he doesn't. He he. He, there's, there's much more encouragement for us. There's more substantive hope and help for us as suffering sojourners. This is more than just Jesus identifies with me, though that's part of it. And we see that in those first four words. 
This is more than, I can now follow Jesus' example. This is more than what we saw back in 221. Uh, chapter 2, verse 21, when, we, when, when, and when Peter lays out this example of Christ and Him being reviled and suffering and unjustly like, like we do. And so he says then, and he gives us his summons to imitate Jesus, to walk in His steps. This is more than that. Here Peter isn't calling us to imitate Jesus. We're going to see he's calling us to behold Him. To behold the utter uniqueness of Christ and His suffering and His eventual exaltation, as we're going to see next week. He's calling us to just to simply wonder and to worship and to consider and to think about for the, to, to, to wonder for the, for Christ's willingness to suffer even death for our sake. And so if there's a key thought that kind of captures in, captures everything, and I'm sorry I don't have anything on the screen for you today, but it, it, connecting where we're at in the context and what he's saying today, it's this, it's, it's our willingness, our willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ, what we talked about last week, our willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ is grounded in the wonder of Christ's willingness to suffer death for our sake. Let me say that again. Our, one, our, our willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ is grounded in the wonder of Christ's willingness to suffer death for our sake. That's what Peter is saying to us here. We are on holy ground here this morning. As Peter just fixes our gaze on Calvary. And so, and that in itself is incredible. Just what I said. Peter is fixing our gaze on Calvary. Because it's incredible because the author of this letter, Peter, he was at one time repulsed at the thought of a suffering Messiah. And so immediately after Jesus announced to His disciples about His impending arrest and crucifixion, Matthew tells us that Peter took Jesus aside. Here, Jesus, you need to talk. I need to talk with you. And began to rebuke Him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Matthew 16.22 But we know Jesus turned and rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so that was Peter's former perspective on the sufferings of Jesus and the sufferings of Messiah. But it's quite obvious that after Jesus' resurrection, everything changed for Peter. And so he came to grasp and to treasure the unique significance and the necessity of Christ's suffering. <clears throat> and so Peter, who, who one time protested the possibility of Jesus' suffering and death, he gets it now and he says, look at verse 18 again, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. We'll just stop there for now. This is one of the richest single descriptions of the meaning of Christ's suffering and death in all of the New Testament. Now, I just quick, a little side note, just because I don't want you to be distracted by it. There, there was a little textual issue here. Some of your translations may that he say that he suffered once. Some say, may say that he died once. How many say suffered? All right. How many say died? 
All right, it's about even. Okay, and, and how many are you know playing, looking off? I don't know, but uh, <coughs> so th- this is there. There's there are different uh, Greek Greek uh, manuscripts that uh, say suffered and say died. Some of the older ones say died. Some of the the, the majority of them say suffered. It's a marginal. Uh, difference, obviously, he certainly suffered unto death, so I don't want us to be distracted by this, but just just know that, I mean, another, a rabbit trail off the rabbit trail. This is one of those, this is the kind of thing, when, when skeptics like to ding on the Bible and cause, cause you to, to doubt the uh, truthfulness of the scriptures, they say things, the Bible's full of errors. This is what they're talking about. I mean, this, this, there are no errors, or they're not, the errors is not even the right word, there's no discrepancies in the text that really alter the plain meaning of the Bible. There are none. There are copying errors where, uh, and where we're not exactly sure what the original said, but it's, it's things like this, suffered or died. There's no, the meaning is not affected. But, so when you hear things like that, when you hear atheists, when you hear skeptics say things like, oh, the Bible's full of errors, that's not true. This is the kind of stuff. So don't, don't be uh, taken aback by that or, or scared by comments like that. All right, back on the main road. So what we'll see, the, yes, there are parallels, there are similar, similarities between aspects of our sufferings for, for uh, righteousness' sake, as for being Christians, and Christ's sufferings. And so there are parallels. We can just see some of those. We, we suffer for doing good if we suffer for righteousness sake, not, not for doing evil. We saw this in verse 17. Now, so did Jesus. Now, in a totally different way, our suffering is, is ultimately never categorically unjust like Jesus' suffering. We are always sinners, but we can suffer for doing good, not because we've, we've sinned. And so there's similarity there. We can face similar types of suffering and persecution that Jesus faced. Mockings and slander and beatings and, and, and arrest and, and even death. <coughs> and that is another one. Our, our suffering can be extremely severe like Jesus' was. And so we can maybe even suffer unto death. And there are martyrs, there will be martyrs, uh, Christians who are martyred even today, probably while we're meeting around the world. And so... Another similarity, just as suffering for good is part of God's will for us, we read that in verse 17, this is, this is the will of God for you, it's also part of God's good design for Christ. It's, it's purposeful. So when we suffer as Christians, it doesn't mean that our life is in chaos, that we're just kind of spinning wildly out of, out of orbit and hoping that God will bring us back in. No, we are held firmly in the hands of God. His sovereign, strong, good, faithful, loving hands. When we suffer for doing good. It's, it's, it's purposeful. We're, it's according to His will. And, and, and again, so it is with Jesus. His death was not an unfortunate ending to a good life. It, it, it wasn't random. It wasn't chance. It was purposeful. It was planned by God. And so there, there are similarities. But as Peter encourages, for Christ also suffered. That's where the parallels and the similarities end. Everything else in the sentence, it only highlights the differences, the complete uniqueness of Jesus' suffering and death. And so that's what we're going to focus on in the time we have. Five statements just saying what is so unique about Jesus' sufferings. First thing we'd say is this, is that Christ's death was unrepeatable. 
Okay, there again. For Christ also suffered once. Once. What, what Christ accomplished by His suffering and death was enough. It was sufficient for all time. It was never to be repeated again. Not by Christ, not by anyone else. Now, why does Peter emphasize this? Well, you consider who most of his readers are. Many of his Jew, Paul, Peter's readers were, 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 were Jews, were from Jewish backgrounds. And so they've been brought up under this Jewish legal system where there's, this, there's been this one constant throughout their lives. And what is that? It's sacrifices. That's, they've known this their whole life. Priests were constantly about the business of making sacrifices. As soon as one sacrifice was completed, it's time to start thinking about and planning the next one. This was what life was, was like. So there's sacrifices in the morning, sacrifices at night, sacrifices for cleansing, sacrifices after the birth of a firstborn child. You got all these sacrifices that were at these, these three big national feasts, Passover and Pentecost and, and, and tabernacles. And so all these pilgrims bringing these animals for sacrifice. Josephus was a Jewish historian in kind of the intertestamental period. He, he, he noted that as many as a quarter million lambs were slaughtered during Passover every year. And so there was so much blood, he describes that it would, it would end up flowing out of the temple and kind of trickling through the streets. It would just be this red tinge through the streets. And so you had the Day of Atonement, this annual sacrifice of this, this, this lamb by the high priest for the sins of the people. And so the people throughout the centuries, millions and millions and millions of sacrifices, so much bloodshed. So many animal lives offered up. And so the Jews, they, they longed for this day that God spoke of when there would be one who would come and make a sacrifice that would be complete. And that day came. And John, John the Baptist, who was, we read about him in the New Testament, he's essentially the last Old Testament prophet. He, he points to Jesus at the beginning of his ministry and he heralds these words. Behold, see, look at this. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so this is, this is what, what that river, this torrent of bull and goat blood that had run throughout the centuries, what it could never do, Jesus accomplished in a singular event when He shed His blood and died on the cross. For Christ also suffered once. His was this all-superior, all-sufficient sacrifice never to be repeated again. Thus the cry of the Son of God on the cross, it is finished. It's finished. No other sacrifice was necessary. His was enough. Christ also suffered once. The book of Hebrews, we see the writer there in Hebrews, he just pounds this point home on several occasions. Turn there with me real quick. I want you to see these words. Hebrews chapter 9, <coughs> verses 24 to 26. We, we could read all of Hebrews 9 and 10, and, but we, we just have to spot read a couple verses here. Hebrews chapter 9. <coughs> Excuse me. As you're turning there, I'm going to get a little breather. 
Hebrews 9, verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Look at verse 25. Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not its own. He's not going back and forth from heaven offering sacrifices. For then He would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And turn over to Hebrews 10, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from, the t- from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Brothers and sisters, how we need to get this into our head and into our hearts. It, was, it is unrepeatable. It was enough. The sacrifice of Jesus is superior. It's all sufficient. Christ died once. His, the, the saving power of that work will never be lost or diminished. It was enough. So it's unrepeatable. Second thing that makes Christ's suffering so unique in His death is that Christ's death was for sin. Christ, For Christ also suffered once for sins. He died for sins. Now, people live and die all the time. That's not just true in our day. That was true in Jesus' day. I mean, in Scripture, though, there are, there are those times when deaths, deaths have some, some real uh, noted significance to them. And so... When a king died, it meant the end of an era. So in Isaiah 6, and when in the year that King Uzziah died, there's this marked moment. And so sometimes you have that. Sometimes when someone is struck down from heaven in some kind of dramatic way, there's this, there's this meaning that's assigned. It's an example to, to people of, of God's displeasure for sin. But normally, death didn't have that kind of um, grand meaning. Uh, thousands of people were crucified, just in terms of crucifixion. Thousands of pe- people were crucified on crosses, just like Jesus was, and 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 no meaning to that. But in the but in the death of Jesus, his death really meant something. His death was for sins. He suffered and died to make payment for sins. In other words, we'd say this. Uh, and the theological thing, his death was an atoning death. And we say that. Atonement, it means to, to make amends, to, to, repair, um, to repair a wrong. We sometimes say, at, at one mint, we're, we're bringing back together. And that's, that's fine. So God is acting in human history to reestablish that original relationship between God and man by dealing with sin, the reason that there has been the separation. That's what's happening in atonement. So he's dealing with man's sin and removing man's guilt. And that, so when he says Christ also suffered once for sins, that's what he's saying. It's an atoning death. And throughout the Bible, the significance of this is clearly attached to Jesus' death. 
Isaiah 53, that supreme passage. Isaiah is looking forward to the suffering servant who will come. And he says, he, he was pierced for our transgressions, for our sins, crushed for our iniquities. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our transgressions, our iniquities, our sins, they fell upon Christ. His death was for sins. The New Testament, again, makes this crystal clear. And this is, this is what's happening in Jesus' death. 1 Corinthians 15.3 Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Galatians 1.4 Christ gave Himself for our sins. Hebrews 10.12 Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. And then 1 Peter 2.24 that we looked at several weeks ago. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. This is the heart of Christianity. The death of Christ was for sins. If you've trusted in Christ, brothers and sisters, then your sins were on Him when He died. And atonement has been made and you are now reconciled to God once for all. God wants every believer to revel in the full assurance as we understand that the price and the penalty for our sin has been paid by Jesus. Full atonement we sing. Can it be? Yes. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Therefore, the basis of our acceptance before God is not on our performance, but it is His grace. This is what's communicated when Christ died once for sins. The atonement has been made. And so we're going to sing this in just a moment after we go to the table. In one of the verses, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, then this happens all the time, brothers and sisters. Maybe this morning for you. The enemy's whispering and doubting the, the sufficiency of, of, of God's love and the work that Christ did on your behalf and dying for sins. Maybe it wasn't enough. And when, when Satan tempts us to despair, like, what does he say? Upward. I look and I see Him there who made an end to all my sin. It's enough. He's, Christ suffered once for sins. It's, a, it's an atoning death. My, no, I can't, I've, there's so many songs. We could stop after every phrase and have the band come back up and let's sing. And, and, but my sin... Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. But it gets even better than that. Alright, we got to move on. It gets better. And, 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 and He didn't just die for sins. He died for sinners. It's very personal. And that's the third way in which Jesus' death and suffering are so unique. Christ's death was for sinners. It's in this phrase. The righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus didn't just die for sins in general as a, as a kind of a, uh, nebulous category. It's the righteous one, singular, dying for the unrighteous ones, plural. 
That's what this is saying. He died for people. He died for sinners. He died for us. This is the truth that we call in theological terms of substitution. Now, it's not a, that's a word we use in other realms of life. It's just substituting one thing for another. Christ died in our place. He was our substitute. Rather than us receiving the full brunt of the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins, Christ took it upon Himself. He died as our substitute. He had the righteous one for the unrighteous ones. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He died for sinners. He doesn't just lay his life down for all of the bad things we've done. He lays down his life for the people themselves. He laid down his life for the sheep. Ephesians 5, 2, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. 1 Thessalonians 5.10, Christ died for us. Titus 2.14, Christ gave Himself for us to redeem us. John, 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, love, that He laid down His life for us. This is the greatest expression of the love of God. John 15.13, greater love has no man than this, than that, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And that's what Jesus did. He laid down His life in place of ours and thereby demonstrated God's great love for us. But you need to realize we weren't always His friends. Before we came to faith in Christ, we were His enemies. We were born that way. And this, and this shows how great the love of God is for us. That's what Jesus did when He died. The righteous for the pretty good. The righteous for the... I need a little few tweaks. The righteous for the unrighteous. Paul just drives this point home in Romans chapter 5. Romans 5 verse 6, just listen. For while we were still weak or helpless, not just like, ah, I need a little boost. No, we were helpless. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if, verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. So I, I trust that you see the progression in those verses. Because they, the, they show the extent of God's love for us. We were, we were helpless, Christ died for us. We were sinners, Christ died for us. When we were enemies, Christ died for us. Jesus is the righteous. He is the righteous. That doesn't mean He's really good. Not like we, oh, you think you're so righteous. You know, like you're, you think you're a little goody two-shoes. That's not it. No, this means He is perfect. He is the righteous without sin. The Jewish leaders accused Jesus of blasphemy. The Roman, uh, the Roman authorities killed Him as a common criminal. But Peter nails it. He accurately describes who He is and exactly what happened on the cross. It was the righteous for the unrighteous. His death 
once for sins was a substitutionary sacrifice. Let that sink into your soul this morning. Peter wants us to to get this, to feel it, to be affected by it. To, To grasp our indebtedness to Christ for this substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus did something. He underwent something in His death so that we would never have to do so. The righteous for the unrighteous. He was condemned in our place so that it could be said to us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, we, we again, we survey this wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died and, 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 and He died as our sin-bearing, wrath-absorbing substitute. And we should just be utterly amazed at the grace of that. 2 Corinthians 5.21 one, one of the clearest statements of this truth of substitution. For our sake, God made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin. He was righteous. He made Him to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This could not be said clear. Then, Peter pins this clear, concise, compelling statement of the the great ultimate purpose of the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us on the cross. Unrepeatable sacrifice. What does he say there? (coughs) Again, for Christ also suffered once. The righteous for the unrighteous. Look at it. That, here's the purpose, so that He might bring us to God. So Christ's death is unrepeatable. It was once. It was, it was for sin. It was atoning. It was for sinners. Substitutionary sacrifice. And Christ's death was purposeful. Christ's death granted access. That's the fourth thing that makes His death and His suffering so unique. He, he granted access. One of the most basic teachings in the Bible is that our sin has caused alienation between us and God. It all began in the garden with Adam. When Adam and Eve sinned, they they were cursed. They were cast away from the presence of the Lord. And everyone born since has been born into that condition. And unless something changes, as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, we will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. And so it's against that dark biblical and theological backdrop that that Peter says these words, Christ suffered once for sins as our substitute, righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God, to bring us back, to grant us access so that sinners like you and me who were far from God that we were separated from God. We had no desire, no inclination to even seek reconciliation with God. We were objects of God's righteous wrath, and justly so. And yet Christ did this, and He sacrificed Himself so that instead we might be forgiven by God and reconciled to God. This is what, this is the purpose. Because of Christ's sacrifice, there now has been this cessation of hostility of holy hostility of God towards us in our sin. 
and a cessation of our sinful hostility towards God because of our sin. And instead, the Son of God has brought evil, depraved sinners like us into the presence of the very God who, who alone dwells in unapproachable light. And as we come by grace alone and through the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we are, we are welcomed to God. We are brought to God because of what Jesus has done. Christ died so that we might have this unhindered access into the very presence of God and find enjoyment in His company forever. Mark 15, I mean, in, in other gospel accounts record the same event. This is the, that, that event we know connected with the passion of Jesus and the tearing of the temple curtain. And so sometimes we read that in the gospel accounts and, say, oh, and, the, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And we think, wow, that's really cool. That's, 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 that's so neat. That's interesting. But do we, do we understand what this means? The moment Jesus died, this massive curtain of separation was torn in two by God. Not the moment He emerged from the grave, not resurrection morning, but the, the very moment the sacrifice is made, the moment He breathed His last, rip! What does that what does that say when the curtain is open? It's saying what? Come. Access is open. He he didn't do it so we could kind of go through life biting our fingernails, hoping somehow we might gain entrance into heaven. He can't, he did it no, so that men and women and children who trust him and trust in Jesus Christ might be brought to God through this once for all sacrifice for sin and say access is open came and He brought us to God. It's, it's staggering. It's, 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 it's amazing. The, the penalty of our sin has been paid for. The, the sacrifice of our, for our sins was sufficient. And now we have been brought to God. If you are in Christ, if you have trusted in Him for salvation, this is reality. It's real. It's not dependent upon your subjective impression in this moment. That doesn't matter. I mean, I'm not saying how you feel doesn't, uh, doesn't matter, but this is not more or less real based upon how you feel in the moment. If you're in Christ. You, are, you have access. You've been brought to God. And so, my non-Christian friend, and I don't doubt we have some among us today, and we are thankful you're here. We are honored to have you with us. I would say to you, get in on this now. Have you come to Him? Not have you come to church. Not have you, you know, cleaned up your life. But have you come to Christ to acknowledge Jesus as a sacrifice for your sin? And that you are a great sinner. And He made the sacrifice that you need. Flee to this substitute. Flee to Him. Trust in Him now for the forgiveness of your sins. Admit that some of the terms of these things that we're saying to God in prayer and just say, Christ, I trust You. I don't have it. I'm a sinner. I need Your sacrifice that was once for all. You died for sins, for my sins. You made atonement. You, you died in my place. 
the death that I can die, and you did this to bring me to God. I need you. I trust you. I want to receive this gift. Do that now. And then come share with us. We'd love to rejoice with you. Last thing I want to say quickly before we come to the table is that Christ's death was victorious. This is what makes his death so unique. And we're going we're gonna to cover this more next week. <coughs> Christ suffered once for sins. And then jump to the end of that verse. Being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. All right, now we're getting into some of the challenges that we're going to face next week. But I want you to see, is the suffering and death of Christ. It may have looked like um, a failure, but it was not. It was not. And some may mock and say, oh, look at this great leader, this, this, quote, King of the Jews. Here he suffered and died as this weak, pathetic, criminal, nobody at his side, nobody helping him, where, where are his supporters, look at his body hanging limp on this cross, suspended by a few rusty nails, that doesn't look like much victory to me, but oh, it is victory, it is, the one who was put to death in the flesh was made alive in, in the spirit, and he went on this victory march, we're going to talk more about that next week, the religious leaders thought they could stop Jesus by killing him, But that was not the case. His death was ultimately his victory. And so, again, we'll see that demonstrated in verses 9 to 22. But just jumping down to give you a little taste. Jesus rose from the dead, verse 21. And verse 22, He has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. It is victory. It is victory. I go back to where we started. What is the kind of the key thought that this all turns on? It's that our willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ. And Peter has exhorted us to that very thing. But it must be grounded in the wonder of Christ's willingness to suffer death for our sake. Don't miss that connection. Don't just camp out on part A of that sentence and neglect part B. It's got to be grounded in this wonder of what Christ has done. I want us to wonder at it this morning and I hope that we already are and we're going to wonder and worship as we eat and drink together. We're going to continue to sing. Don't worry, the singing's not over. We're going to go out singing from here uh, just as Jesus and His disciples went out singing from that first institution of the Lord's table. There's no greater worship response for us after looking at this core gospel text than to come and to worship together at the table. The the Lord's Supper is meant to strengthen, to nourish, and and to sort of recenter our faith. To put it back on Jesus Christ. Because our confidence in our our right standing before God based upon what Christ alone has done for us through His death and resurrection, it's so easily shaken. And we, we have to constantly pull it back. And this is why Jerbridge talked about preaching the gospel ourselves daily. We, we're constantly coming back and reminding ourselves of these gospel truths because we naturally revert back to things like, I'll never be good enough. Uh, I, 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 I'll, I've got to clean up my act first. God's, God can't love me after what I've done. Or I'm, not, I'm not as good as those people. Or we go to the other stream and say, I'm better than those people. 
Or, I, 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 I've, I've been really good this week, so God must be happy about me. Or, uh, God must love me after all that I've done and sacrificed for Him. And so we, we come with head held higher. We come just devastated. Both are wrong. We come not looking at ourselves and, trying, and looking at others and comparing ourselves horizontally. We come and we say, and we look at Jesus and what He's accomplished, what He's done. At this, in this table cries to us, it's Christ! It's Christ! It's, it's Jesus! It's what He's done. Put your confidence in Him. It recenters us. And so, let me pray. And then after I pray, if the men would come forward and prepare to serve uh, together. Father, we, we ask, Lord, for the help of Your Holy Spirit to comprehend the gravity and the significance and the necessity and the beauty and the wonder of Christ's willingness to suffer death for our sake. And so as we eat and drink and engage our senses and as we do this not in isolation from one another but together as a church, Father, use this to recenter us upon Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.